Hebrews, Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. Increment 45. Ep prepen gar auto. Auto. Ep prepen gar auto. It was fitting for him. And we begin by approaching the throne of grace. And we thank you, Father, for the great joy and privilege of manifesting your word, of preaching your word, and letting the Holy Spirit bring it forth with power and conviction and demonstration to the edification of your people and to the augmentation of the church in numbers as well as stature. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. And we ask that you will allow the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth to be acceptable in your sight as we continue in this wonderful study. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Our text is Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 9, and we will progress into verse 10 today. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus. And there is the phrase that I named this series upon. Who was made inferior to the angels for a little while. So that by the grace of God, or as we've seen, or far from God, he would taste death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Notice it says, the suffering of death, not the sampling of death. It is vital that we understand first that this one called the Son of Man, whom God visits with salvation in Psalm 8.5, Septuagint 8.6, is an eschatological representative figure. Second, this man is Jesus. Third, this man has been crowned with glory and honor. And we'll call 44, increment 44, the completion of a corona series, which is a series within our Hebrew series. We progress now and move on into Hebrews beyond that corona series. Crowned with glory and honor, a phrase lifted from Psalm 8 and applied to Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus, who tasted death for all of us. That culminates that particular study within a study, which we began, I think, with increment 12 and went all the way through 44. Crowned with glory and honor as a result of the suffering during which he experienced death for all of humanity. This Son of Man, to whom the brave new world of the future has been subjected, and who is now crowned with glory and honor, is the same Son of Man who was crowned with a crown of thorns. And when he did that, he was bearing the curse of Adam. Please notice that. If you compare Genesis 3.17 to 18, thorns and thistles being the curse of Adam, that Jesus wore that crown Matthew 27:29, Mark 15:17, John 19:2, John 19:5. Jesus was bearing the curse of Adam when he wore the crown of thorns, the curse of Adam in whom all die 
in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. This Jesus, under whose feet God subjects everything, also from Psalm 8, as well as Psalm 110, which is the Septuagint 109, under whose feet God subjects everything and brings all of his enemies, is the same man whose feet were nailed to a cross, or we could say impaled on the tree on which he was made a curse for us. He fulfilled the curse, in fact, speaking of curses, he fulfilled the curse of Deuteronomy 21, 23, by becoming that curse. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed by God is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Notice the word everyone, which is the Greek in the Greek text, pas, P-A-S, pas. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Jesus hung upon the tree, bearing the curse of the law, and upon his head, the crown of thorns, demonstrating the curse of Adam. When Jesus was hanged upon a tree, which is a metaphor and an analogy for the cross, his name, now listen carefully, because I'm using a kind of an analog here. His name was Pas, P-A-S, everyone. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. He was everyone. Peter picked up on the analogy of the tree and the cross. As Paul did in Galatians 3.13, Peter did in 1 Peter 2.24, where Peter wrote, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree refers to Deuteronomy 21.23. Cursed by God is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus fulfilled that curse for everyone. When one died for all, all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 So I would ask this question. Who was Jesus when he died. Second Corinthians 5.14, again, a verse that everyone should know, says, if one died for all, that's panton, which is the plural form of pas. If Jesus died for all, then all pantes, the plural form of pas again, all died. So I ask again, who was Christ when he died? The answer is, Christ was all. Christ was everyone when he died. Consequently, when he died, when Christ died in behalf of all, hooper, hooper, Pantos, as we have it in Hebrews 2.9 also, when he died in behalf of all, all died. 
So there is no stronger expression of the representational aspect of the death of Christ than right here in a conflation of Hebrews 2.9 with 2 Corinthians 5.14. Nor is there a more powerful confession of the universally saving efficacy of the death of Jesus than here. Though all the New Testament bears witness to it, one cannot be an able minister of the New Testament without bearing witness to the universal efficacy of the death of Jesus Christ. The New Testament bears witness to it. The way that the Son took, the way that he took, the path that he trod to be in perfect solidarity with all human beings was to accept and endure the curse of Adam for all human beings. Hooper, H-U-P-E-R, Pantos, P-A-N-T-O-S, a form of the, the, the word pas. Now the word for hangs in the phrase cursed by God is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Deuteronomy 22.23 quoted in Galatians 3.13. That word for hangs means, is the word in the Greek, kremanumi or kremanumi. K-R-E-M-A-N-N-U-M-I. Kremanumi. Kremanumi, as it is, means to hang. In Galatians 3.13, compared with the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 21.23. But that word also means to depend. And it's used that way in Matthew 22.40. Upon these two commands, that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and that you will love your neighbor as yourself, upon all these, upon these two commands, one like the other, hangs all the law and the prophets, and therefore depends all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets depend upon those two commandments. So we could say, cursed by God, hupotha'u, is everyone who hangs upon a tree. But we could also say, blessed is everyone who depends upon the tree, relies upon the tree, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only blessed is the one who depends on the tree, if this tree is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, but in fact, blessed is the one who glories only in it, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14. When Jesus was cursed by God, and that's the phrase used in Deuteronomy 21.23, of Christ in Galatians 3.13, who has made the curse for us. When Jesus was cursed by God, he was 
in effect at least, far from God. I refer you to last, the last increment. When Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted, he was brought, by contrast, into the very bosom of God, as James, John 1.18 says it. He did not remain accursed. He did not remain accursed. Just as when he was made to be sin, he did not remain as sin. No one can say, by the Spirit of God, Jesus is cursed. Anathema, yesun. No one can say that. By the Spirit. That means if someone were to say that Jesus remains cursed, they may be a faithful Gnostic, a docetic Gnostic, but they're not a faithful Christian. Because you can't be in the Holy Spirit and say that. (coughs) And it goes on to say in the second half of 1 Corinthians (coughs) 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Now though Jesus was made a curse for us, as he was made sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he did not remain accursed. He did not remain sin. He is Lord, and through him God has given us the victory even over death. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. He died as the righteous one for all the unrighteous to bring us to God. Who? All the unrighteous. Who's that? The whole human race apart from him. Christ died, the righteous one, for all the unrighteous ones to bring us to God, says 1 Peter three eighteen. That means to bring us to God with him. When he died, we died. When he was crucified, we were crucified. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose, we rose. When he ascended, we ascended. When he sat down in the heavenly places, we sat down with him. He brought us with him to God, the Father. Jesus was cursed by God because he was made to be sin for us. When Jesus died, he died to sin. And we died to sin with him. Romans 6, 9 through 11. Our old self, the one cursed in Adam, died when he died. Romans 6, 6. Our old self, cursed in Adam and destined to die in Adam, did die in Christ, in whom we were made alive in his resurrection and brought to God in his ascension. So in one sense, we are already in future world with him. For as Paul wrote, God made us who were dead in trespasses to be alive together with Christ. 
by grace you are saved, and raised us up together and seated us together in the heavenly districts in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. But in another sense, and in a very real sense, we are still in the agona, the agon, A-G, long O-N-A, that is set before us, a contest, a struggle that is set before us, Hebrews 12.1, in this world, in this clash of the ages. And may I say this, this is necessary. Your participation in the agona and mine is necessary. Hebrews 12, 8 through 11 speaks of that, where the suffering that we endure is likened to the formative or educative suffering that a father gives to his children. As well as 1 Peter 1, 6, though for now, if, if it is because it is necessary, you are enduring a series of trials and ordeals. Because it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Because as Jesus was perfected through sufferings, so are we. No disciple is greater than his or her master in this matter. Matthew 10.24, Luke 6.40. And as Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, and this is in a very important verse, the privilege has been given to us not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And again, as Peter wrote, Now the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will restore and confirm, strengthen and establish you after you have suffered a little. A little. That means a little while. And a little bit. And that's a little compared to Jesus' sufferings which were, of course, one of our favorite new adjectives, incomprehensible. Now, we may cry in our sufferings, and there's no shame in weeping in our sufferings or in weeping as we grieve with others. We may cry in our sufferings, as Jesus did, in Hebrews 5, 7. But we never need to whine, W-H-I-N-E, in those sufferings. Whine in those sufferings. He never did. I've been on this planet for nearly 70 years, and I have to say that this past year has involved more whining than I've ever heard in all my life And I'm speaking not of people I know, but of people I see 
in the news media or on social media, and I'm very limited as what I see on social media. In fact, if people see fit to send me things from social media, it is very rare that I look at them or listen to them unless they have an edifying message, and it's brief. I'm studying. I've got a lot to do in Hebrews alone. It's okay to cry in our sufferings, and we do from time to time. It's never okay to whine. He never did. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18, continues the exposition of Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9 is expositional. It continues to be expositional in 10 through 18. That section begins with Hebrews 2.10 where we are told that God considered it fitting. And that's the real title of today's message. He considered it fitting, appropriate, suitable. That the Son be perfected through suffering. Now here we're in the heart of the question that underlies our study of Hebrews up to this point and will also be pertinent throughout. Why did the Son, that's capital S-O-N, need to be perfected? And why through suffering, of all things? Asked another way, the question would read like this. If the Son was already perfect... As God's eternally begotten Son, who from eternity is generated out of God's own substance as consubstantial with himself, as Lonergan put it, if the eternal Son from eternity is generated out of, the God, out of God the Father's own substance as consubstantial with the Father, that makes him perfect. If the Son, even in the days of his flesh, was without sin, even though he was tested in every way like us, then why did the Son need to be perfected, and in what sense? It certainly can't mean that the Son was not morally or ethically perfect, and that he needed to be ethically or morally perfected. The scripture says he knew no sin throughout his time on earth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He had no sin, 1 John 3.5. He did no sin, 1 Peter 2.22a. Nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, ever, 1 Peter 2.22b. He was tested in every way as we are, but he never yielded to sin as the way out. Hebrews 4.15. Now this passage we're studying right now will show us that the Son needed to be made perfect as the great high priest of his people in every way. He could only be perfected as great high priest by being made like his people in every way, as Hebrews 2.14 says. 
Moreover, the Son could only be perfected as their or our great high priest through enduring the suffering by which the sin of his people would be forever removed. Hebrews 2.17, Hebrews 9.26. Now, I want to refer to some, a document right now. It is the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America. The preamble. It was signed in convention September 17, 1787. It was ratified on June 21, 1788. In that preamble, it says, quote, We the people of the United States, listen carefully, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In that preamble, I have emphasized the phrase, in order to form a more perfect union. If something is perfect, how do you say more perfect? If a union is perfect, how does that union become more perfect? Now, the so-called founders of the United States of America use the phrase to form a more perfect union. They use that phrase. They understood that something could be perfect, but could be more perfect. In the case of this document, that which was to be formed was a more perfect union or a more perfect solidarity, to use a more common modern term. A more perfect solidarity of the people of the United States of America, a singular national entity. The people at the time of the 13 colonies were already perceived to be in a kind of imperfect solidarity. A constitution was intended to make that solidarity more complete. The ideal, and it is an ideal, and it hasn't been realized yet, and it won't be in human history in this evil age. The ideal of a more perfect union has still not been reached in the United States of America nor will it ever in this country be realized in its perfect completion. The ideal of a perfect union of the Son of God with all of humanity, however, is realized in future world and is in one sense already a perfect union. You are complete in him who is the head of principalities and powers. That's Colossians 2.10. Now, God's purpose was to make the human race, which was already in a kind of solidarity as being all human. As Paul says in Acts 17, we all came from one man, and some translations say one hymatos, one blood. We are all of one blood. 
Yet, because of systemic sinfulness throughout the whole human race, a more perfect union would have to be realized by the suffering of the sinless Son. For that union to occur, the Son himself had to be perfected, not in the sense that he somehow needed to be augmented morally or ethically, but in the sense of becoming the perfect, single, inclusive representative of the people, all people, their representative, their priest. The eternal Son needed to be perfected in his solidarity or his union with all of humanity. This is the reason for the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. As Hebrews 2.14 says, quote, Since the children have a share in blood and flesh, in the same way he also partook of the same. One thing we human beings have in common, and it makes us in a kind of solidarity, we have blood and flesh. You want to make other distinctions from that? Go ahead if you want. You want to fight wars over it? Go ahead. The beginning of the perfection of the eternal Son of God, which is the perfection Hebrews is talking about, was his incarnation. If he's going to come into a perfect solidarity with sinful humankind, the sinless Son of God, eternal Son of God, must first become flesh, but then he must become sin. And so incarnation isn't enough. There's an additional process which I call instauration. Crucifixion followed by resurrection. Jesus' participation and in blood and flesh in that order in Hebrews 2.14. Like the children whom he would call his own... Why blood first? Because no matter what color your skin is, Your blood is red. Blood is the determiner that makes us all one humanity. The blood of Christ is the determiner that makes us all one redeemed humanity and new creation. These truths are being neglected today, rejected today, blown off today. Not everywhere, not here, and not in those who are receiving the true gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. The beginning of the perfection of the eternal Son of God was his incarnation. I said the beginning of the perfection of the Son of God. His participation in blood and flesh, like the children whom he would call his own siblings. The incarnation of the eternal Son in itself was not enough 
a more perfect union was required in addition through instauration. The human beings with whom the Son was to be united in a perfect union were systemically sinful. Furthermore, they were under the control of the one who had the power of death, that is the devil in Hebrews 2.14. So that all their lives, human beings are enslaved to the fear of death. To form a perfect union between the Son of God and the human race, therefore, required that the systemic sinfulness or the sin that permeated all the human race would have to be extirpated, E-X-T-I-R-P-A-T-E-D. That means pulled up by the roots. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 13, every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be pulled up by the roots. Well, the Father didn't plant, plant sin in the human race. And so the Son came to pluck it up by the roots. The Father plucked it up by the roots through the Son's death. The sinless Son's perfect union with the human race would require that the Son pluck up that sin by its roots. To do this required that the Son suffer. The removal of sin would require that the Son become the sin that prevented the perfect solidarity of the Son with the human race and of the human race with the Son. The incarnation meant that a union of sorts was made in the incarnation, Christmas morning, you might call it, a union of sorts was made between the Son of God and the human race. But a more perfect union was required. And it required the removal of the systemic sinfulness of the human race. This required that the Son who had been made flesh be made to be sin. John 1, 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So that the sinful human race could be made the righteousness of God in him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That is in part what I mean when I say the word Instauration. I don't mean it in the same way that the philosopher Francis Bacon used it in his work called The Great Instauration. I mean it in an entirely different way. Instauration, I-S-I-N rather, I-N-S-T-A-U-R-A-T-I-O-N. But still, with this said, someone may still ask, but why did Christ have to suffer and why did he have to die? Well, first, because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. And someone had to bear those wages. Second, no one but a sinless man could bear those wages. 
Therefore the Son became flesh, and as such, a sinless human person, a person both human and divine. Third, without suffering, and this is more important than you know or can imagine, nor, and more important than I can know or imagine. Without suffering, God the Son could not reveal in the most sublime and otherwise incomprehensible way to all of humanity and to all of creation the nature of God's love, which in its essence is self-sacrificing and therefore a suffering love. God's love is a suffering love. You've heard of the word long-suffering. It is long-suffering. Love is patient. It is long-suffering. The word is makrothumia, for long-suffering. Herein is love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 And again, God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son, John 3.16. And again, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. And still again, the life that I now live in this physical body I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 I am answering here the twofold question imperfectly and in parts, increment by increment. The answer itself needs to be brought in a more perfect union a more perfect, unified form. Let's go to Hebrews 2.10. For in the bringing of many sons to glory, I would call that a divine project. So I would translate it with a little bit of extension here by saying, for in the divine project of bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting in the eyes of him because of whom and through whom are all things, to make the founder, and that's a good word for this, archegos, to make the founder, speaking of founders, the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. We speak of the founders of our nation, men who were not immune from the systemic sinfulness that is throughout the entire human race. Systemic, that means it infects the whole body, as Isaiah 1 says. The whole body and the whole head is sick. All of humanity apart from Christ is riddled with systemic sinfulness. Sinfulness has many forms. Racism is one of those forms, but it's not the whole of it. And the whole human race is riddled with systemic sinfulness. Self-righteousness, judgmentalism, bitterness, envy, hatred, vitriol, slander, 
violence, swiftness to shed blood, to steal, to destroy property, to kill, to kill the innocent, to gossip, to malign, to fear, to be jealous, to be anxious, to be worried about everything. For in the divine project of bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting in the eyes of him, because of whom and through whom are all things, to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, or complete through suffering. There is the founders of this nation, sinful. There is the founder of our salvation, sinless. Hebrews 2.10 directly confronts our twofold question by averring or affirming that God, the creator of the universe, the one for whom and through whom all things exist, considered it fitting. He considered it fitting. He considered it appropriate and suitable that Jesus, the founder of salvation, for the all for whom he tasted death, the founder of the salvation for the all for whom he tasted death would be perfected or completed through suffering. God considered that fitting. And let me tell you something. What God considers fitting, what God considers fitting, becomes necessary in the absolute case, in the absolute sense. Make it a principle if you want. What God considers fitting becomes necessary or is necessary. That God considered it fitting or appropriate that his son, the Christ, would suffer was brought out with some extra force by Jesus after his resurrection from the dead, after he suffered to bring many sons and daughters to glory. This is what he said. And Jesus said to them, this is Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And here's the powerful statement or question put to them. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ suffer These things, that's rejection and hostility from the chief priests and leaders in Jerusalem leading to his crucifixion and death. Look back at Luke 24, 20 to find that. And to enter his glory. So Jesus said, was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Here's a principle once again. What God considers fitting is necessary. The PT says it was fitting in the eyes of him because of whom and through whom are all things to make the founder of their salvation, our salvation, perfect. 
the founder of our salvation had to be made perfect or complete through suffering. Jesus had already said, was it not necessary that the Christ, who is the Christ? What does the Christ mean? The Messiah, the anointed one. It means the founder of universal salvation. That's what it means. The founder of such a great salvation. Hebrews 2.10 compacted together with 2.3. And Hebrews 5.9. The very word Christ, Christos, or Messiah, Mashiach, carries the connotation of founder of the salvation of the world. I said founder of the salvation of the world. The people of Sychar, S-Y-C-H-A-R, in Samaria, rightly said of Jesus, quote, this really is the savior of the world, the Messiah. Not every translation gets the, the Messiah in there. The majority text or the Byzantine text does, John 4.42. The savior of the world and the Messiah are entirely compatible descriptors of Jesus. Messiah, or Christos, carries with it the notion of cosmic or universal salvation. Paul makes this clear by defining what he calls the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1.9 as God's intention which was eventually his resolution. In other words, that God wills or considers fitting becomes necessary. His intention made his resolution to sum up everything in the heavens and on earth through all of time, and the fullness of time means diachronically through all of time. En to Christo, in the Christ, in the Messiah. That's Ephesians 1.10. Again, what God considers fitting is necessary. It must of necessity be brought to pass. What God intended in the mystery of his will, it becomes an unstoppable determination. If God intends that all things be summed up in Christ then all things will be summed up in Christ. If God intends that all will be saved, as he does, 1 Timothy 2.4, then all will be saved. The intention becomes a necessity. It has to be done and it will be done. It has been done, in one sense, already in Jesus to be manifested at his universal appearing. I will do all my will, says God. Isaiah 46.10, that famous verse. The necessity that the Christ suffer these things, Luke 24.26, has to do with the fittingness or the appropriateness in God's eyes that the Son be perfected through suffering in Hebrews 
10. The entry of the Christ into glory in Luke 24, 26, which follows his suffering, and you can compare that to 1 Peter 1, 11, corresponds to the perfection or the completion of the Son in Hebrews 2.10. I'll say that again. His entrance into glory, the Christ's entrance into glory, is comparable with the Son's perfection or completion. Luke 24.26 compared to Hebrews 2.10. His entry into glory is his exaltation to the right side of the majesty in the heavens. And it is his appointment to be priest throughout the age after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest, the king of Salem, or the New Jerusalem, as Jesus will be, and a priest. What God considered fitting became an absolute necessity. His son was perfected through suffering. First Peter 1, 10 to 12 relates Christ's sufferings and entry into glory. He, to, he relates it to a salvation, even the expectation of which involves a joy that is glorious beyond words. First Peter 1, 8 to 10. In the same way, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews, whom we have dubbed the PT, the pastor theologian, relates that entry of glory or that perfection of the Son to such a great salvation in Hebrews 2.3. As all that the prophet said has to do with the suffering of the Messiah, the Son of God, and his entry into glory, that's all that the prophets have said. That's the sum of it. So God's voice spoke through all his holy prophets from time immemorial of a cosmic or a universal restoration. Apokatastasios Panton, the apokatastasis that you've heard so much about if you're in this phalanx. In other words, the suffering of the Son and his entry into glory is inextricably united to the restoration of all things, which is the great salvation of Hebrews 2.3, which is the summing up of all things in Christ in Ephesians 1.10, which is the regeneration or the new creation of all things in Matthew 19.28 compared with Revelation 21.5, which is the reconciliation of everything visible and invisible in the heavens and on earth through the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love. Colossians 1.20, confer with 1.13. It was fitting and therefore necessary that the Son be perfected by coming into union with all of creation, including its sufferings, its groanings, its cryings out. And with all of humanity, including its sufferings, in order to lift all of creation and all of humanity out of its sufferings and into the glory that God intended it to have in his Son and with his Son. Is there any reason on earth, and let me address this to you, you still be listening now, listen, be attentive. 
is there any reason on earth or in heaven for the neglect of this truth? Is anything worth the neglecting of this truth? Is there anything worth not believing and identifying with this reality? Would you cover a lit lantern, this lit lantern of this gospel, with a bushel basket if someone considered you a fool for believing it? Would you hide this light for fear of being canceled or mocked or verbally abused on social media by a petty and judgmental people? That's the kind of question the PT puts to his readers. It's the question that I put to myself and to those who are hearing these teachings on Hebrews in 2020. I'm going to leave you with that question. I have much more to say on this verse. But I'm going to leave you today with that question. Father, we thank you that you saw it fitting. And in your view, it was fitting that the Son be made perfect, be brought into perfect solidarity with all of us human beings and with all of creation. And that you deemed that it would be suitable that he would be perfected through suffering. By suffering for us. And even now by suffering with us. We recognize that no disciple is greater than his teacher. And so we expect that we too will endure this agona of the class of the ages. That we will endure chastening by you in the sense of formative and educative suffering so that Christ will be formed in us. We understand this is necessary. Grant us the grace that though we may cry from time to time in this agona, we never have to whine in it because your son, our savior, never did. We ask this in his name. Amen.